0: 17, if you are not there already. John 17, we'll be looking at verses 20 to 26 this morning. John 17, 20 to 26. And let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, This morning we join our voices with these who have just proclaimed hallelujah. You are everlasting, never failing. You are our faithful God, our God who loves us on the mountaintops and in the valleys deep. You love us even in our sin. As the scripture tells us, for even when we were yet in sin, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world, a sinful and rebellious world, of which I am one, that he sent his only begotten Son. But whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Hallelujah. Heavenly Father, this morning we rejoice in the grace of God that is ours in Christ. And Father, I pray that as we come to this passage this morning that we may see this call to unity, that we may see the provision that you've given us for unity in Christ and the hope that we have in Christ and that we may be pushed forward to fight for unity. That we would see who we are in Christ and all that we have and that all that would divide us and would would cause rivalries among us would be pushed aside. That the gospel may go forth. That you may be glorified in all that is said and done. And pray that you would work in each and every one of us through your word this morning. That your purposes would be accomplished. Give me boldness to proclaim The word of God, Heavenly Father, clarity of mind and of speech, that you may be glorified in all that is said and done. In Jesus' name, amen. As we come to John 17, verses 20 to 26 this morning, we're coming to the end of kind of a journey that we've been on for the last several weeks, months even since we started in John uh, 13. And we've been working our way through John fourteen and uh, 13 and 14 and 15 and 16 into John 17. In John 13 through 16, we have the, um, the Lord's final benediction, His final teaching to His disciples before He departs. And as we come to John 17, we have His high priestly prayer As he takes those same truths that he has just unpacked to his disciples and now he prays them to his Father. Do this, Father. Keep them. Sanctify them. And as we'll see this morning, unify them and glorify them. So we've been on this journey and and I've mentioned each time as as in John 13 and and 14 and, and 15 as Jesus is they're in the, the upper room. Where Jesus gives his farewell discourse and then they get up and they're walking through the streets of Jerusalem making their way towards the Mount of Olives. As we come to John 17, 20 to 26, we're in those last few steps as they're making their way towards the gates of Jerusalem. In fact, if you'll look with me in the first verse of, of chapter 18, it says this, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. So a few chapters ago, they left the upper room. They've been winding their way through the streets of Jerusalem as Jesus has continued to teach. And then he's turned to prayer and he's been praying to the Father for his disciples and for us. And now, in these last few verses, these are Jesus' last few statements. His last prayers as they head out to this garden where he'll be Betrayed, arrested, and the next several hours, crucified, and then risen again. So as we come to John 17, there's a preciousness to this moment. I've mentioned each each time throughout, uh, specifically this prayer in John 17, how it just feels like we are on holy ground feels like like we're not supposed to be here as we listen in to this prayer, this communion between Father and Son. There is so much here. It's one of those passages that, every passage, uh, my my grandfather told me uh, in my installation service, he told me, he said, you know, every time I preach the Word of God, I get nervous because I'm handling the Word of God, and may I do it faithfully. And I feel that way every time I step into this pulpit. But how much more as you look at something like, like Jesus praying to the Father and the depth that is here. May God give us grace as we come to this passage this morning. As you work your way through this, there's two main requests in this passage that we'll see. Jesus prays for harmony in the church, and he prays for hope for the church. The first thing we see this morning is harmony in the church. Verses seven, chapter 17, verses 20 to 23. And he starts by expanding the audience for who he is praying. Those for whom he's praying. We talked last week about how in verses 6 through 19, he's praying for those who believe. Those who believed up to that point. Those who are with him specifically, the 11 apostles. As we come to verse 20, he says this I do not pray for these alone. Verses 6 to 19, the believers at that time, all who believed up to that point, specifically the apostles who are with him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus here expands who he is praying for to all believers. Specifically, he's looking forward to the church. He's prayed for those apostles, those who will go on to be the foundation of the church with Christ, the cornerstone, as we know from from Ephesians. Now we build on to those who will believe through their ministry, through their word. I pray also for those who will believe. No, even Christ's confidence in this prayer. He doesn't pray, I, I pray for, for these apostles that go forth that may they have a successful ministry. They will have a successful ministry. And I pray for those who will believe. It is a sure thing. The gospel will go forth. As Matthew 16, 18, as Christ proclaims, the gates of hell themselves will not prevail. The gospel will go forth. They will believe. The church will be built. And so I pray for these who are with me and I pray for those that they will reach. What hope that must have been to the disciples as they are walking there along Jesus, along with Him. And He's told them all along, I am leaving. That's the the big truth that undergirds all of the farewell discourse. Christ is leaving. And they're so worried. What are we going to do? How is this going to work? Again, in this prayer, Christ says, "As they go, I pray for those who will believe. You will be successful. The gospel will go forth in power." So, you come to verse twenty. He's expanding who he's praying for. Specifically, he's praying for those going forward who will believe. The church. So he's told us who is he praying for, but what is his prayer? What is his request as he's looking forward to those who will believe? And what's fascinating to think about is is Jesus isn't just praying for some random group of people. He knows the names of every single person that he is praying for at this moment. Just as he knows the names of those 11 who he's already prayed for. And what is his prayer for all of those, all of us? What is his prayer? Verse 20, one, that. So, verse 20, I pray for. Verse 21, I pray that. That they may be one. Christ prays for unity. That they all may be one. it's quite a statement that they all may be one this gospel is going to go to the world it's going to break barriers through cultures as Paul says in Galatians 3 28 erases all human prejudice and and, and and divisions between man and woman and slave and, and free and Jew and Gentile and rich and poor that they may all be one. The gospel brings together what sin draws apart. The gospel breaks racial barriers, economic barriers. Limitations that, that we as sinful man, would put up. The gospel breaks through those that they may all be one. They would all believe and that they would be one. The gospel puts us all on equal standing. In Christ there is not man or woman, slave or free, Jew or Gentile. In Christ, we are redeemed. That is who we are. That is our most important descriptor. But they may all be one. What kind of unity is this? He prays for unity, but what kind of unity is this? Right? There's things in this life that could bring us together. Go to a sporting event. That kind of divides into at least two groups, but it somewhat brings us together. But it's temporary. What kind of unity is this? Look what he says, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. This is not just a temporary unity. It is a perfect, a complete unity. As you, Father, are in me and I in you. The example that Christ gives of what this unity looks like is the perfect Trinitarian unity between Father and Son. All throughout. John, He's he's put forth the, the Father and the Son and the Spirit as distinct in person. They have distinct roles. And yet, all throughout John and all throughout Scripture, they are unified in essence and in purpose and in plan. And that is the example that Christ puts forth as what kind of unity this is in the church that he's praying for. It's a perfect unity. It's a complete unity. A unity of essence, a unity of purpose. How is this possible? Note, if you will, the progression of the passage. Verse 21, that that, that. Then verse 22, there's and, and then that, that, that. Christ is praying, He's, he's building on what he's saying. I pray that they would be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they would be one, that their unity would be like our unity. That, so that builds on the former. That what? That they also may be one in us. This is a unity that is a supernatural unity. It is a unity that is only possible in Christ. In fact, what we see here is that unity in the body is the result of union with God and Christ. They are one in us. To what end? that the world may believe that you sent me." It's a unity that proclaims the gospel by pointing to Christ. And don't, don't miss that. The kind of unity, as we saw in 21a, it is a perfect unity, a complete unity. The way to unity, 21b, how is this possible? It is in us. In, with God in Christ, and what is the goal of this unity? 21C. The supernatural unity that is ours in Christ that says the world may believe that you sent me. A unified church proclaims the power of the gospel. And don't miss that, because the opposite is also true. That a divisive Church, a church that is torn apart by rivalry harms the gospel. Unity proclaims the gospel. Division harms the gospel. I pray that they may be one so that the world may believe that you sent me. Which implies that if the church is not one, If we are torn apart by division, then the world will not believe. It's kind of intimidating as you just look at those first few verses. mean, even as we look at the church today, is it marked by unity? Could we say? you look at the universal church that were marked by unity? What hope is there for this? That's what verse 22 through 23 comes in to say. Verse 21, we have Jesus' prayer that they would be unified. In verse 22, we have Jesus' provision. He has provided for this unity. Note the break. It's that they may be one, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe, and there's a break. Verse 22 at the beginning here is not a request. It's a statement. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them. How is this unity possible? I understand that it's... it's, The example is the the unity in the Father and the Son. It's a complete, a perfect unity. I understand that it's only possible in Christ. I understand that it proclaims the gospel. How can we have this kind of a unity in a a sinful world and a church made up of sinful people? Because of the glory which you gave me, the Christ that I have given them. question, though, is as you come to this verse, what is this glory? I'm going to be honest, I, I've struggled with this passage all week long. I, uh, I've looked at several commentaries, and sometimes you'll find the commentaries aren't that helpful. <laughs> sometimes they just use the word that's there. It's like, see, look. Christ gave us his glory. Okay, but what does that mean? What does that look like? What is that? I was listening to one sermon that someone preached on this passage, trying to figure out what in the world is going on here, and he said, I've listened to a lot of messages. I think he said he'd listened to 15 or 16 messages on this passage, and he said that this is one of the most difficult passages I've ever had to understand. He said in those 15 or 16 passages, or messages, I heard probably eight or nine different explanations for what this glory is. And the difficulty comes in this. In John 17, the glory of Christ is is, is pretty important. It shows up several times. We see it in the first five verses. Christ prays for the glory that is his. He's praised, Father, glorify me. Return to me the glory that is rightfully mine. In those first five verses, what is that glory? It is Christ's glory as the only begotten Son of God, as a member of the Trinity. It is what is rightfully his. It is the glory that he set aside in the incarnation that is returned to him. In fact, just a little bit later in verse 24, Jesus says this, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. He's praying that once we get to heaven, we will see him as he truly is. So when you look at the immediate passage, that phrase, the glory which you gave me, in the immediate passage of John 17, refers to Christ's unique glory as God. And we know that's not the glory that he's given us. It's not that that we become gods like him. So what is this glory? Well, if you zero in a little bit more here on verses 21 through 25, you see that what this glory does is it's a glory that equips us to be unified, to proclaim the good news to the world and to know the love of God. So this is how I would define it. I would say that the glory which you gave me, which I have given the name, the glory that Christ has given us who believe, basically it is all that is ours in Christ that equips us to take hold of God's precious promises to us in Christ. What it is, is the very content of Christ's teaching in John 13 through 16. It includes the Holy Spirit who fills us and who teaches as we see in John 16, 7-15. It includes, even as we just saw last week in John 17, 17 17-19, the truth through the Word of God that works in us to sanctify us. It is the ability, as we go back to John 15, 18, to abide in Christ and thus to glorify God. Really what it comes down to is a promise that God will complete in us what he has begun. (laughs) The glory which you gave me, I have given to them, is this, the Father who glorified the Son through his incarnation, through his death, through his resurrection, through his ascension, and seated him at the right hand, the Father who glorified the Son will glorify us. He will bring to completion his work in us. What this glory is, it's a guarantee that God will complete in you what he has begun in Christ. That that sanctification that Christ prayed for in 17, 17 to 19, will be completed into glorification in heaven. As 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but when he appears, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. It is a promise that God will complete in us what he has begun. And it is a promise that guarantees, that equips us for unity. So, verse twenty-two: "And the glory which You gave me, I have given to them. All that is God, that is ours in Christ, that equips us to take hold of God's promises. The Holy Spirit, the Word through which God works, God has given all of that to us in Christ, so that we might be unified. This unity to which we are called in Christ is not an impossible task." You're equipped for it. And it is something that God will do ultimately. Mm -hmm. Perfect unity, complete unity, won't come till glory, but it's coming. But that doesn't mean we should not strive for it here. That they may be one just as we are one, he says. This glory that he has given us works to the purpose that we may be one just as we are one. It unifies us. It brings us together to this perfect and complete unity. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one. This completed and perfect unity in Christ will come to pass. There is coming a day when the church, when Christ's bride will be complete in unity. And what a proclamation of the gospel that will be. And we may not reach that in this life, but that does not mean we should not be growing in unity and pursuing it in this life. We have all that we need. Again look what he says. He repeats, that the world may know that you have sent me. Again, hear this, unity in the church proclaims the gospel. Unity in the church proclaims the gospel. Unity between believers proclaims the gospel. And have loved them as you have loved me. Unity in the church proclaims the gospel to the world the deity of Christ and unity in the church proclaims the extravagant love of God for believers. As we fight for unity, as we pursue unity as a body among ourselves, we proclaim to the world outside that Christ is God. Believe in Him and we proclaim to one another, God loves you. Look what he's saying here. As we love each each other, as we pursue unity with one another, we proclaim the extravagant love of God to one another. That God has loved them, believers, as you have loved me. What a statement! God loves you as God loves Christ, his only beloved the only begotten Son of God, the second member of the Trinity. God loves you like He loves Christ. And we proclaim that love to one another as we pursue unity by loving one another, by caring for one another, by laying down those things that would drive us apart. Listen to what Christ is saying here in his prayer. It is not insignificant that the last thing, these last six verses that what Christ focuses on before he goes to the garden in 18 and is betrayed and arrested is he prays for the unity of his church. Because unity proclaims the gospel to the world and unity proclaims God's love in the church. <coughs> Do not miss that. Again, First John 3.1 See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. What love this is that the Father has for us. And this is where it ties into our theme for the year, one another. I mean, as you think, as you look at this, and you think about, man, what, what does this kind of unity look like? In a church, in a broken and fallen world, in a church that is making up made up of, of broken and sinful people, what does this kind of unity look like? That's what we see in Romans 12, the very passage we've been working through this year. It looks like laying yourself down as a living sacrifice. It looks like having a right view of yourself. It looks like having a right view of others. It looks like pursuing unity as much as is possible in yourself. Doing all that you can. So I'd encourage you on your own time if you want to know what this looks like how can I do my part to pursue this I see it's importance I see that I need to be doing this I need to be pursuing this I see that Christ has provided for this how can I do this? I encourage you on your own time go back to Romans 12 and start there and study that out. Christ was on his prayer from verses 20 to 23 the harmony in the church to hope for the church. Hope for the church. Father, I desire. All right, so this is his second prayer request. His first is for unity. His second is for hope. I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. That they may be with me where I am. This goes back to, John, to to his promise to his disciples in John 14, 1-4. When he promises his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for me, that I may come for you, that I may come back and get you, that you may be with me where I am. He has told them, you will be with me where I am. And now he prays, Father, bring that to pass. Verses 20 to 23, look to the future at the time in which Christ is praying this, to the church, those who will believe through the testimony of those who have believed. Verses 24 through 26, look even beyond that to glory. I pray that they would be with me where I am. I pray that you would bring to completion what you have begun in them. That they may behold my glory which you have given me. That they may see Jesus and his majesty and his glory that is rightfully his and who he is. I pray that they may see me in my glory. That you would bring them to heaven. Completing the work in them that you have begun. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. It goes back to John 1:1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. It goes back to this eternal relationship between Father and Son and Holy Spirit. You have loved me before the foundation of the world, O righteous Father. Righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. Back in John 3, verses 10 to 13, as Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. He tells Nicodemus, if you remember in that passage, he tells Nicodemus, these things I'm telling you, I'm telling you, from firsthand perspective, no one has seen God except for the one that God has sent. I am that one. I'm telling you things that I've seen with my own eyes. I have known you, Jesus says here. same thing he says in John 14, 6-11 to his disciples. I have known the Father. I am one with the Father. I have known you. Not only have I known you, but verse 26, I have declared to them your name, and I will declare it. I have known you, and I have proclaimed you. And they have seen, and they have believed. Christ has proclaimed the truth. His disciples and those with him now and those in the future who will believe, believe the truth. So his prayer is that God would bring those who have believed, bring to completion his work in them, that he would sanctify them, ultimately that he would glorify them. That I have declared to them your name and I will declare that the law of with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. That the love with which you loved them may be in them. Believers are not only the object of God's love, we are the channel of God's love to other believers and to the world. That my love may be in them. As God loves us, we love others. So Christ prays for harmony in the church. Unity among believers. A unity that proclaims the gospel to the world and proclaims God's love for us to the church. And then, verse 24 to 26, Christ prays for the hope for believers that God would bring them to glory. That he would finish what he began in them. That this unity for which he prays would be completed. And so, in conclusion, I think it's important for us to pause here and to see the importance and how seriously unity is in the body among believers. Unity is not an option. In fact, when believers lack unity, they harm the gospel. Think about that. When you hold a grudge against someone else in the body of Christ, against another believer, you are harming the gospel. That's not just a private matter, that's not a sin that doesn't affect anyone else. When you allow rivalry and hate and division to seep into the church and to divide believers, you harm the gospel of Jesus Christ. Both in witness to the world and in ministry to one another. Ephesians 4, 1 to 6 says this Paul prays, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love. Those words are important because that's what unity takes. It takes lowliness in each and every one of us. It takes gentleness. It takes long-suffering. It takes bearing with one another. Those are not words that sound easy. Because they're not easy. But that must be what we are willing to do. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Because there is one body and one spirit just as you were called in. One hope of your calling. One Lord. One faith. One baptism. One God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. So don't let the world divide what Christ has brought together. Endeavor to keep that unity. Fight to keep that unity. So by way of application, number one, be challenged. Pursue unity. Do whatever it takes. Even this morning, if there was someone in this room with which you feel a rivalry, even the slightest hint of disdain, I would challenge you, even today, before you leave, go to them and say, I am sorry. Let's pray together. Let's seek God's face. I, 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 haven't, I haven't told you this, but this, this seed of rivalry has been burning in my heart. It's been growing, and I need to root it out. I need to get rid of it. You are my brother or my sister in Christ, and I love you. And maybe don't tell them this. But you can tell yourself this. I'm willing to bear with you. It's not easy. I will be long-suffering towards you. I will endeavor to keep the unity. So be challenged this morning. See the importance of unity in the body among believers. And yet, secondly, in in that same breath, be comforted. Be comforted that you have all that you need to be unified in the Spirit who indwells you, in the word of God that you have in your hands, and the promises that are yours in Christ, and the hope that God will complete what he has begun. Do your part and yet at the same time be comforted that unity is not dependent on you, that God will bring to completion what he has begun, that he will do it. That there is a day when Christ's bride, the church, will stand perfect, clothed in white, not because of our sinlessness, but because of who he is. That we will stand unified as a body, proclaiming the gospel, to the world, and to one another, look what God has done. And let's start today. Let's start today. Proclaim the gospel to the world. Proclaim the love of God to one another because of what God has done for us in Christ. We're going to close with the.